thankful he's got a birthday coming up so should the lord bring us to whoa should the lord bring us together he'll no longer be the oldest i think that's the that's the deep joy of his heart right now so all right if you have your bibles and i hope that you do would you open again to esther chapter four and if you're using the pew bible that's page 356 And so follow along with me. We've just read that text together, and I want to take a bit of time just to go through uh, this text in Esther and really discern what the Lord is trying to teach us as the people of God as we come together for such a time as this. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be here preaching this morning. I don't take this uh, lightly. It is a a privilege and a joy uh, to speak to God's people today. But if you are familiar with this book at all and uh, looking at the text of Scripture, I want you to think for a moment in your life and think about a moment, about some of the defining moments in your life, some of the big decisions that you've had to make. Uh, We as the body of Christ at Orchard Park and you as the body of Christ at at Cornerstone, we've got a big decision uh, approaching us, right? And so Think about those big decisions in your life, these forks in the road that set your course, determine your future, uh, moments when you made a choice and turned a corner, uh, declared your purpose, set your face and marked your territory. Uh, Now, some of those moments are beyond our control. They're not of choice, but of happenstance. But whatever the case may be, defining moments shape us as the people of God. And they direct our steps, and they leave us utterly changed. Um, When you first met the living Christ, you don't have an encounter with Jesus and come away unscathed. You're changed. And Esther chapter 4 is one of those defining moments for the nation of Israel. It's a pivot point, really, in the entire book. And for the queen, Esther, it's personally also a defining moment. A crucial decision has to be made, and only she can make it. Uh, And upon which hangs the fate, not just of her own broken family, but of the entire people of God. It was a decisive moment for Esther, and it was a decisive moment for the Jewish people. And as we look at it together this morning, one of the key things that I hope we'll see uh, that it'll help bring together for us is the oftentimes complex intersection of two vitally important biblical themes. On the one hand, the absolute sovereignty of God in providence, upholding and governing all of his creatures in all of their actions, and on the other hand, the absolute responsibility of human beings as his creatures in their respective vocations and callings. The sovereignty of God directs, ordains all things, 
including the free actions and decisions of human beings. And yet Esther 4 teaches us that our responsibilities in such a universe where God does sovereignly orchestrate all things, the sovereignty of God does not get us off the hook when we're called upon to make difficult decisions. He gives us a mind to use it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, and so we're going to begin by looking at Esther's uncomfortable choice in her counting the cost. Counting the cost, the uncomfortable choice. And so let's get some context, first of all, so we know where we're at in this story. Lord willing, most of you are probably familiar with this book, but if not, uh, in chapter 3, what had happened is Haman, who's the enemy of the Jews, in his rage against Mordecai, because Mordecai would not bow and give him honor in the gate, which he probably should have, but that's a sermon for another day. Um, He has manipulated the king into sanctioning, really, the genocide of the Jewish people uh, throughout the empire, not just in the Citadel area, but throughout the entire Persian Empire. And so 11 months later, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, they were all to be, according to Haman's decree, killed, destroyed, and annihilated. Like if you read through the text and those different words, that it, like as if being killed isn't enough, as if being destroyed isn't enough. No, we want to annihilate them. It's just complete and utter destruction that is coming upon the nation of Israel. And chapter 3 ends in the citadel of Susa in an uproar, right? Everyone's going kind of crazy. And the king and Haman are wearied, really, from a hard day's work of plotting genocide. And so they're unwinding together over a couple of cocktails. And so chapter 4 opens kind of like a news segment. So if you watch the news and you you get that... uh, Sometimes when they go, oh, let's cut to the view outside and see what life is like on the street. This is what's happening in in chapter 4, right? And so they want to get the reaction on the ground. And so, okay, here's the reporter on the ground. And what's happening? The camera zooms in on Mordecai. And Mordecai's tearing his clothes. He's putting on sackcloth and ashes. And he's loudly proclaiming distress and grief throughout the city. And then in verse 3, you can almost hear the news anchor back in the studio, so to speak, And he's going, and these are the scenes reported all across the empire. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Esther, apparently, she's been oblivious to Haman's plot. She doesn't know because she's living in luxury in the palace. And she's unaware of the uproar outside at the palace grounds. And so let's use our sanctified imagination. So if Esther turns on her nightly news and suddenly she sees what's going on, it's what is happening here? Why is all this happening? She's understandably concerned. And so she sends a fresh set of clothes to Mordecai through one of her eunuchs and sends Hathak. And he goes to find out what's happening. And in verses 6 to 9, Mordecai gives Hathak a detailed report of all that had taken place, and he begins to plead with Esther to intercede on behalf of her people before the king. And we have Esther's immediate reply in verse 11. If you look at verse 11, all the king's servants 
and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called into the king these 30 days. And so you can almost picture the blood draining out of Esther's face as she hears Mordecai's solution. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what actually takes place because we don't live in that kind of world. But in, in that world, in order to come into the presence of the king, you had to be invited. And if you came into the presence of the king uninvited, well, that's usurping authority. That's frowned upon. It's not complimentary language, so to speak. You would be killed in order for the king to maintain authority. And Esther hasn't been before the king in 30 days. And Mordecai says, no, you have to go before the king. And in verses 12 to 17, after Esther is thinking, I'm not sure your plan is such a great plan, Mordecai. We have what is by far the most famous passage in the entire book of Esther. Mordecai's reply is a master class in balancing equally ultimate truths, helping us to hold together these two principles without compromise. First, he says, Esther faces that uncomfortable choice. Verse 13, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Right? Mordecai is unflinching in shattering the secret refuge of Esther's heart. Do not think that just because you're the queen that your identity will remain hidden for long. If the Jews die in the streets, they'll die in the palace queen or not. And he is forcing a decision upon Esther that so far she has managed to avoid altogether. And it's important to remember, if you're familiar with this book at all, Esther is the one character in the story with two names, with a double identity. She is Hadassah, the Jewish peasant girl, and she's Esther, the Persian beauty and royal queen to the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And for some years now, she's been part of his harem, and she has lived a life utterly submerged from her true identity, her Jewish roots obscured and hidden from view because she's submerged in her Persian role. But she can't live that way very much longer. There is no belonging to the people of God while living like a child of the world. Or to put it in our terms, there's no way to be a secret Christian and a public pagan. There's no one day of the week, on Sunday I'm going to come and worship and walk through the church doors and 
I'm blessed, everything's fine. I fought with my wife on the way here, but you don't need to know that. I'm going to put on my plastic, and everything's great. And then Monday to Saturday, I'm just me. I'm going to separate the sacred and the secular. We don't do that. We're not given that option. There's only always the sacred. You're a child of the king or you're not. Esther has to choose and so must we. And maybe God is calling some of you this morning to recognize a double life that's being led. That simply cannot go on. Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. And he will be devoted to one and despise the other. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Right? In other words, there's no middle ground. There's no neutral territory. There's no riding the fence. There's no demilitarized zone where you can walk as you follow Christ. There's no place for a Christian to walk to sign a treaty with sin. It's not possible. Jesus Christ claims your allegiance. He calls you to face the cost of discipleship. As Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We are to pick up our cross and follow him and be prepared, if it be his will for our lives, to lose our lives for his sake. Ultimately, that we might gain them. Right? And Esther is coming face to face with a fact that is hard. And it's, it's frightening. It's scary. There is a cost that will need to be paid for following the king who is Jesus. But this is the call of God in her life. And if you're a child of God, it's the call of God in your life. You belong to the covenant people of God. And it's time you stood in solidarity with them. Be who you are. A child of God. Behold. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. There's no defecting from the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And there's no democracy in a kingdom. You follow. The second thing Mordecai tells Esther, however, points not to her identity and her need to own it, but to his own security, right? So if, first of all, we learn about the uncomfortable choice Esther has to make, that we all need to count the cost and stand for the cause of King Jesus, we also learn in these verses, secondly, about the unshakable hope that those who do so can enjoy. 
And that is salvation belongs to the Lord. That is our unshakable hope. Regardless of what he calls us to, we know, like I've read the end, we win, right? We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And so the book of Esther, it's like a small room, and in the center of the room sits this massive elephant that no one really talks about. If you ever read the book of Esther, it never mentions God once. And yet, he's everywhere. Right? The elephant in the room is the presence of the sovereign grace of the almighty God. He's never mentioned, yet his sovereignty and his presence is at work everywhere in this book. And here in Esther 4, verse 14, the elephant that's been sitting in the room kind of walks over and sits right in Esther's lap. Can't avoid me any longer. Right? Perhaps that's happened to you in your life. Right? You've decided to, you know, Jesus doesn't tell you to eliminate everything all the time right away. Right? It's little bits. Sanctification is a process, bit by bit by bit. And the closer you get, eventually that elephant's going to sit in your lap and go, okay, let's talk about this now. And so the elephant sits in Esther's lap. And listen to the words of Mordecai. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, salvation will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. What confidence, relief, deliverance, salvation will come, even if it doesn't come from your hand. Mordecai is full of unshakable hope and security. That's what we should be full of as the children of God, right? As long as you're breathing, child of God, you are immortal in this life until God's work for you is done. Do, do you walk in that power? Like, do we actually believe that? Nothing can take your life, this life, while you're breathing, if you're a child of God, except... God. And he will do that only to give you the greatest reward you can ever have, himself. Why is it so hard for us to grab hold of that sometimes? What remarkable confidence. The extermination of his entire people at the hands of an ancestral enemy, Haman the Agagite, and this never-to-be-repealed decree of the king of Persia that has proclaimed their destruction of Mordecai and the Jewish people. And there is confidence that whatever happens, salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? And look again at verse 3. We don't necessarily notice this sometimes in our, in our Bibles. It says, In the king's province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, we can read that and we can think, oh, they're just they're full of despair and it's hopeless. And that's not the word picture that's going on there. This is not despair when we see them weeping and fasting and mourning in reaction to this decree. You see, the language that's there in Esther appears again 
word for word, or it's probably better to say the language is borrowed word for word from the prophet Joel in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. In that passage, God is calling his people to, it says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, to rend your hearts and not your garments. And almost certainly the author of Esther wants us to read the reaction of the Jewish people in light of Joel chapter 2. Return to Yahweh your God. Return to the Lord your God. And Joel goes on to say, For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And we're meant to hear the echo of Mordecai's words there. Right? Joel 2.14 says, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? And Esther 4.14 says, Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? It's the exact same phrase. It's not there by accident. It's only here in the Old Testament. So where does Mordecai get his security and his unshakable hope that characterizes him before the hatred of someone who has more authority than he does. Mordecai knows the promises of God. Do you know the promises of God? Do you rest in the promises of God? Do you preach the promises of God to yourself? Do you walk in the promises of God? Mordecai knows the covenant faithfulness of the Lord who has sworn to relent when his people turn back to him. Relief, deliverance, salvation will arise. If it doesn't come from you, Esther, it will come from someone and the Lord will see to it. He trusts the Lord who reigns over Haman's wicked heart. He trusts the Lord who reigns over the king's perverted power. He trusts the Lord who reigns over Esther's fear-filled mind. And he trusts the Lord who rules over the destiny of his people. And he has promised to deliver them. When they call upon the name of the Lord in faith, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is really a proper view of the doctrine of divine sovereignty in the Bible. The sovereignty of God is a refuge in which we as the people of God can rest secure. It is a safe harbor in which we can anchor our faith in the midst of every trial. It's the hiding place in the storm. It's the very rock of Christ upon whom our salvation is built. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, you know, there's the foolish man who built his house in the sand and, you know, the storm came and crumbled, right? And then there's the wise man who built his house on the rock and the same storm hit both houses, God doesn't promise that everything's going to be okay all of the time. But when the storm comes, 
the rock that is Christ will hold you. Rest in that promise. Rest in the hands of the God of infinite faithfulness and goodness and grace. And know that when you are prone to wander, prone to leave the God you love, he is holding you. He is holding you. You could not be safer or more secure. And I believe that Mordecai wants Esther to understand that although there is a responsibility that she is being called to to face up to here, and we'll get to that in a moment, there's also a danger that she needs to avoid. And the danger to be avoided is thinking of herself as essential or indispensable. I mean, isn't that the real temptation that we face sometimes as the people of God? We think, well, God really needs me. We think God is in heaven lonely. Man, can't wait till Trevor gets here. <laughs> I'm so lonely without him. We forget that at this very moment, there are an innumerable number of creatures and beings surrounding his throne, singing holy, 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 holy. And we somehow think that we're the vital cog in this machine of grace. We're the indispensable component in God's plan. And the trap that we can so often fall into is thinking that God uses us because he needs us. Minimizing God's role and maximizing ours. But beloved, the fact is that God doesn't need any of us. He just doesn't. He doesn't use us because he needs us. He uses us because he loves us. Huge difference, right? And when he does, it strengthens our faith. It's a means of grace to strengthen our faith to show that he is faithful when we are faithless, right? We preach Christ. God opens blind eyes. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we need to count the cost, which is the uncomfortable choice. And in doing so, we need to trust that salvation belongs to the Lord, which is our unshakable hope. And finally, we need to do, as John Piper would say, act the miracle, which is our unavoidable duty. Look at the text again in, in chapter 14, or sorry, verse 14. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Mordecai says to Esther, stop and think, Esther. Review your history. See the steps that have led you here. Why do you think the word of God calls us as the people of God 
to constantly remember the works of God. Remember, 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 remember. It's because we so often forget. Right? We forget. We tend to pray only when the trials come. So when the sky is blue and the sun is shining and everything's going great, we walk in our own strength. Or maybe it's just me, I don't know. But it's in the middle of the storm that God calls us to remember. See the steps that have led you here. Esther, haven't you asked yourself often through all the heartbreak, through all the sorrow, what God was doing? You ever been there? You ever walked through trial after trial after trial and you're like, what are you doing here, God? Like, what, what is going on? As John Calvin would say, I see no reason for this. And yet God has sovereignly been orchestrating everything up to this very moment for the deliverance of his people in such a way that only he gets the glory because he won't share it with any of us because we're just too often prone to go, look what I did, like I'm awesome. And God's like, no, you're not awesome, right? You're, I'm just not. It took the death of God to save me. How can I be awesome? Could it be that you've come to the kingdom for this moment, Esther? You're in a unique place in the providence of God. You've got unique opportunities and unique responsibilities. Do you see that this duty rests upon you? You are his instrument for such a time as this. It's a question worth asking ourselves, isn't it? For what purpose has God brought you to this place, this moment, this time? Who has he made you to be in his wise providence? What are the unique opportunities you have in your sphere of influence, your particular web of relationships? How is the path of duty lit for you in your life? Does it light the way to your boss? Does it light the way to a family member? Does it light the way to your neighbor's door? <laughs> All of those people cannot be classified as unreached. Because they have you for such a time as this. Those are the very questions Mordecai was pressing on Esther. And she began to wrestle with and face up to. 
And as verses 15 and 16 make it abundantly clear, these were the questions that did not wait long for an answer. God took hold of Esther's heart, and she resolves her fears, she makes her choice, and she opts for solidarity with the people of God. And so she calls the people of God to fast and specifically view this as a time of God's provision for her. And she will join together with them and they will wait upon the Lord for three days. And then in verse 16, Esther's immortal declaration, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It's a decisive moment, not just in the narrative and not just in Esther's life, but a decisive moment in the redemptive history of the people of God. And it's meant for us as the people of God here to look past Esther to a true and better Esther. As Esther's words ring in our ears, if I perish, I perish, resounding with notes of courage and faith and heroism, I want you to hear the echo of another Savior's words, spoken at the greatest decisive moment of them all, in the garden, staring into the darkness of Calvary. The submission and resolve we see in Esther is surpassed and fulfilled in the one to whom she points us. As the Lord Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Like Esther in the citadel of Susa for the exiled Jews of the empire, so now, Jesus in the garden for God's elect in every place, in every age, at just the right time, Romans 5, 6 tells us, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4 tells us, for such a time as this, God has raised up a Savior in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But whereas Esther risked everything to intercede for her people and live, we have a better mediator. One who did not merely risk it all, but one who lays down his life and dies for his people. What Esther confessed only as a possibility, if I perish, Jesus owned and chose as a necessity for us and for our salvation. He died that we might live. Esther 4 directs our gaze to the great decisive moment where salvation was won. And it calls each of us to a decisive moment of our own. Has God in his purposes brought you to this place for such a time as this? That you might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you might repent of your sin and put your faith in him. Will you find refuge in Jesus Christ? 
Christ alone, who has gone before you to the throne of grace. That you might live. Will you act the miracle? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be pleased in this place. If there are any here that are apart from you, that you would do what you love to do in the saving work of your son. Seek and save the lost. Quicken dead hearts. Open blind eyes. And grant life where there is only death. Indeed, Lord, show them a vision of Christ that is beautiful to behold and cause them to walk in victory all their days. And for us as your people, Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that when we open our mouths, Christ looks beautiful. You are good and you are glorious in all that you do. And we thank you in Jesus' name.